Welcome back to Principles of Environmental Toxicology. Well, just like the students in this class taking a journey through this uh, subdiscipline, this discipline of environmental toxicology, today's lecture, Distribution and Storage of Toxicants, is about journeys. And it's about the journeys that the toxicants and toxins take once they've crossed those primary epithelial cell barriers that we talked about next time. Uh, what they do in terms of transport phenomenon is what we're going to try to describe today. We'll try to give some uh, introductory sort of case study examples of, of what can happen in terms of uh, s distribution pathways, but also about storage as being a primary source or resource of intoxication uh, if our bodies are in fact storing toxins in, in some fashion or another. And we've already talked about uh, lipophilic toxins that would store in our uh, adipose tissues, our fat tissues. Uh, we can also talk about uh, perhaps inorganic uh, toxicants such as lead and vanadium that would store in our bone materials in a very similar pathway to that of calcium and phosphate. Today our learning objective is what we're trying to do is have you identify some of the ways that toxicants are distributed in the body. Most of us uh, can feel our pulse and we have a sensation that in fact uh, there is significant fluid flow within our own bodies. We'll talk about those more active flow and also some of the more passive uh, flow dynamics in terms of distribution of toxicants in the body. We'll try to recognize the relationship between the route of absorption and the pathway of distribution. Uh, as for example, uh, there uh, are, as we identified last lecture, there is extremely active and rapid uh, potential for distribution with high blood flow like in the uh, pulmonary or respiratory systems. We'll try as well today to describe some of the factors affecting distribution. We'll define volume of distribution, not perhaps in this lecture, but in the text. I will warn you that in some editions of the used textbook, the volume of distribution definition is inverse of what it should be. Uh, make sure that the, the uh, definition that you're reading or the equation you're reading makes practical sense to you in the same way we talk about volume and concentrations in normal concentration units. Uh, it's an unfortunate uh, uh, typographical error. We'll try as well today also to list uh, some of the storage uh, sites, this through your reading and also through some of the lecture material. We'll try to discuss how storage influences toxic and half-life. Uh, for example, you can imagine that it is a longer half-life for something that gets actively stored, like a lipophilic compound, like PCBs in body fat. All of you, have, as, as I have introduced, uh, have a residual store in your body fat of some of the organochlorine pesticides uh, used in the latter part of the last century because these are still cycling through the ecosystem, a long half-life in the ecosystem and in animal tissues, and also a long half-life in your system. We'll review several case studies. Uh, we'll talk and finish out with uh, models of storage and distribution, how these models are actively used in terms of risk management and risk assessment. I will warn you several times during this lecture that there are two pieces of software in the resources module of the course website, and I believe also in this lecture website, regarding some uh, blood lead uh, modeling programs, lead spread and IEUBK. And then also another uh, piece of software, which is a little bit more difficult to download and get working because it's an MS-DOS program, and that's a probit analysis calculator, uh, probit analysis uh, calculator for ecotox risk assessment. 
both of these uh, lead risk assessment software programs and the probit analysis program are going to be required for successful completion of exam one. Okay, these are fairly straightforward uh, pieces of software. Although probit is, is perhaps in a format you're not used to, uh, it is still fairly simple. Uh, get it working prior to the exam. I'd be happy to answer any questions, help you, guide you through. And if you need to, we can take some time, either by email, telephone, or uh, by appointment, to work it through for you, so that you can actually uh, get these programs working for you, and have at least a preliminary understanding, especially with regards to IEUBK, of how to input data, come up with a predicted blood lead level in children, and then uh, use that in a risk assessment format. Okay, uh, handy skills to have, but also necessary skills for our examination. Well, today we're transferring from our previous discussion of absorption to the next step in this pathway of distribution. We found that absorption through the skin, lung, or intestinal tissue is followed by some passage into this interstitial fluid. And the interstitial fluid makes up about 15%. You'll see various numbers of this. Interstitial fluid is the fluid that's not within a cell, uh, for example. Intracellular fluid is about 40% of the total. Blood plasma is about 8% of the total. And again, this varies uh, by uh, gender and by species type in, in animals, uh, but they're significant in terms of approaching uh, at least uh, double digits in terms of percent flow. We'll look at some other diagrams in the course of the lecture that allow you to break those fluids down as well. What we find is that the toxin is absorbed and it enters uh, through this interstitial fluid, uh, uh, either through the cells or modified uh, through the fluid uh, between the cells. And we can also talk about the fact that uh, you know our bodies are, are, in a certain sense, large balloons, uh, uh, water balloons, if you will. And there's a significant amount of just free fluid in our organs uh, uh, and also in our body, this interstitial fluid. And this interstitial fluid is balanced uh, in part uh, by our vascular system, but also by our lymph system. Uh, swelling injuries uh, sometimes cause an imbalance of this, this uh, stasis, this osmotic pressure, uh, and also the fluid pressures uh, between high pressure domains like your blood system and low pressure domains like your lymph system in terms of managing fluid uh, throughout your body. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, these various toxicants uh, can be mobilized because we do have fluid flow uh, in our bodies uh, from one part of the body to other parts of the body. This can aid in elimination because all fluids will eventually uh, be filtered, whether it be in the lymphatic system or in the blood system through the kidney. And this is a primary step in terms of elimination of the toxicants through the body. So this mobilization is typically a good thing in terms of decreasing uh, the uh, toxicant concentration. But at the same time, it also can mobilize it to sites of potential injury. And we'll talk about uh, this in a future lecture in terms of target organ toxicity, where in fact this toxicant may have direct action on a particular uh, organ, organelle, or organ system. Uh, the toxicant also at the site of injury and also when it's distributed, distributed can enter uh, tissue cells and uh, do significant amounts of damage in terms of uh, turning uh, specific mechanisms off, turning them on, or interrupting with a various array of potential toxic endpoints. These toxic endpoints we reviewed earlier in some of our preliminary uh, lectures. 
In terms of distribution, uh, how we move toxicants uh, from one part of the body to another, uh, we have two major uh, distributions, active distribution systems. The lymphatic system, it's a slower system, slow circulation. Uh, typically what we find in uh, the lymph system is that it is made up of capillaries, nodes, tonsils, your spleen, your thymus, and lymphocytes. Um, it actually uh, drains fluid uh, from various uh, systems around uh, your body. Uh, what it does, uh, your lymph uh, capillaries actually are not pressurized, uh, so other, you talk about blood pressure. We have a pressure system and therefore a potential for osmotic pressure. Uh, in uh, lymph, we don't have a pressurized system. In fact, lymph moves by movement. Uh, if you have a swelling injury, sometimes uh, the doctor, after the initial healing, will encourage you to move that limb to drain it. Uh, peristalsis uh, is the muscular movement of, uh, of uh, some of the uh, uh, fluids associated uh, with lymph, an important part of lymph drainage. The lymph system actually ends in terminal capillaries, uh, so essentially like the fingers uh, of your hand, uh, each terminal capillary uh, is a membrane that allows for fluid transport from interstitial spaces in between cells and across membranes. Uh, to drain it and it allows for transport of toxins if uh, uh, that may be in terms of a concentration gradient across that membrane uh, as well as transport of various uh, lymph system components uh, up into for instance the site of an injury uh, the site of a uh, infectious disease uh, lymph system also helps us uh, m uh, mobilize uh, fats, especially uh, we talked about the importance of uh, the lymph system in the uh, microvilli and villi in your intestinal lining. It's to deliver uh, uh, antibodies in case of infection, but it also allows for active transport of fats via an emulsification process. And so uh, the milky white uh, nature of uh, some lymph uh, is associated with these emulsified fats. Cardiovascular system, on the other hand, is a very rapid flow. Uh, anyone that has ever seen uh, films or videos of uh, an arterial injury knows that this fluid is under high pressure because of our heart and uh, drains very rapidly from one place uh, to another in terms of blood flow. The cardiovascular system contains the heart, the arterial and venous uh, vessels, capillaries in the blood. There's very rapid circulation and so direct intravenous uh, dosing of uh, a toxicant such as an uh, intravenous drug user uh, allows for a very rapid uh, circulation systemic effects throughout the body. Those pathways such as uh, um, a uh, respiratory intoxication where you have very, very rapid exchange with the pulmonary system for oxygenation of blood can also allow for very fast intoxication because of the very high transport of that membrane. The major distribution of toxicants uh, is considered to be the blood, although both of these systems are important in the circulation of potential toxicants in the body. 
The blood system is, uh, again, the major uh, toxicant transport medium. Uh, it contains uh, not only the plasma, which is a non-cellular fluid, and so this is the water plus all of the inorganic ions and organic materials, uh, free fatty acids, uh, fats, uh, uh, some proteins. Uh, for example, the human serum albumin, uh, which is shown here in terms of a ribbon diagram of that particular protein, is actually the major uh, protein uh, in your body. It, in blood, it's about uh, oh, 30 to 50 grams per liter, okay? Uh, important for maintaining osmotic pressure, important for nutrient transport, and it's also important for binding various uh, toxins in terms of transport and setting it up, hopefully for elimination, but sometimes, as it turns out, it affects uh, systemic distribution uh, to perhaps other target sites within the body. Blood contains erythrocytes. Uh, these are red blood cells, important for oxygen transport. Erythrocytes uh, have uh, a, a significant hemoglobin levels. Uh, they uh, have a substantial lifetime. Uh, they're on the order of months, 60 to 90 days is probably typical. Uh, leukocytes are our white blood cells. These are uh, made up of several subcategories. If you ever had a CBC or complete blood panel in a physical, you've seen the breakdown of your leukocytes, neutrophils, basophils. Um, these are immune function. They register, uh, for example, antibody function. Uh, they register, uh, for example, allergic uh, reactions to histamine. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, platelets, uh, another category of uh, your blood. Uh, these cells uh, are cells that are also called thrombocytes, important uh, in terms of clotting mechanisms. Uh, these have relatively short lifetimes on the order of weeks. Uh, you'll notice that we talk about sometimes anticoagulants uh, as being toxicants. Anticoagulants, a very popular uh, type of uh, rodenticide or rat poisons or mice uh, poisons. These uh, anticoagulants uh, interact directly uh, with the uh, fibrinogen uh, and the clotting action that are important in terms of platelet function. When we uh, have a toxicant that uh, enters the bloodstream, uh, it can affect uh, the body in terms of the location of where it enters. As we've kind of introduced in the digestive system, we have a portal vein. The portal vein uh, rapidly carries toxicants to the liver. It's a major blood flow pathway, a substantial amount of blood. I believe uh, 50 to 60 percent of your blood flow at rest uh, is the portal vein uh, running through a first pass take. It's called first pass. That's something to asterisk in your notes where we get uh, digestive uh, uh, results, these uh, uh, monomers, these uh, nutrients, and also potential toxicants that are absorbed either by uh, active or passive uh, membrane transport. Um, they go into the capillaries uh, in the intestinal tract. We saw how these are extremely vascularized tissues with high surface areas. Uh, these drain to the portal vein. The portal vein uh, passes to the liver and uh, deposits uh, in the liver and the liver cells in terms of liver physiology all of the uh, actual uh, reactants in terms of the metabolic uh, byproducts that uh, the liver makes in terms of the molecules of life. Uh, the polymers such as glycogen, uh, polymerization occurs and metabolism occurs in the liver. 
and as well it's the primary organ in terms of detoxifying all of those secondary compounds uh, that exist in our normal everyday diet that have potential for toxicosis. Uh, in the respiratory system, this is uh, uh, of interest because uh, we have uh, transferred directly into the pulmonary circulation. Uh, we also find that uh, not only can chemicals uh, via solubility uh, and membrane transport uh, pass into the pulmonary system, but if we have particulates that are small enough, and typically these are uh, sub-5 micron, sub-2 micron, very, very small particles, can actually pass through the interstitial cell space. Uh, the walls uh, in between two cells uh, allow for some passage of these very, very small particles. Again, this is sort of a peristalsis motion. Uh, then, uh, at that point in time, it can enter um, pulmonary circulation, it can enter uh, lymph circulation. Uh, as it turns out, the lymph system is uh, pretty good at circulating particulates around and uh, setting them up for elimination. Um, we also find, uh, in terms of toxicants, that particles uh, that uh, have a shape or a chemical reactivity uh, uh, can actually be a uh, primary toxicant uh, in terms of interacting with lung tissue. An example of this is asbestos. Asbestos is a mineral, uh, but the particle shape is one of that, uh, similar to a needle. These needle-like forms, as you can imagine, are hard to essentially pass through uh, tissue. They don't uh, interact well with your mucociliary escalator in terms of uh, once you breathe in these needles, uh, they take up residence. And what we have is a, uh, uh, a continuous irritation of uh, the tissues uh, around this needle. And that's one of the uh, impacts in terms of the steps to lung cancer from asbestos. We have uh, percutaneous or dermal uh, transport of toxicants. And here, uh, as you uh, have uh, heard in several lectures now, that, that the toxicant can, can enter the peripheral blood supply and then once in the blood supply can have a systemic effect or affect uh, organs uh, significantly far away in the body. Some of the factors that will affect the toxicant's distribution, and we've talked about these, are the physical or chemical properties uh, of the toxicant. Uh, some of these will inc include its polarity, uh, nonpolar versus polar, how soluble it is in water, how soluble it is in fat. Is it charged? Uh, is it a large uh, molecule? Uh, is it uh, a large molecule with a very uh, small conformation, so conformational in terms of things like protein folding versus uh, other sorts of uh, interactions. Is it reactive? Uh, is it electrophilic? Is it looking for uh, electron sources like nitrogens so that you can have an interaction? Uh, these sorts of physical chemical reactivities that you learned about in freshman chemistry and organic chemistry still come to play in terms of the interaction of these chemicals with various chemicals and biochemicals in the body. Concentration gradient plays an important uh, role in terms of determining the volume of distribution. Uh, small doses of uh, moderately or, or uh, uh, less toxic uh, chemicals can be diluted below uh, any sort of threshold uh, dose for uh, toxicity in terms of the concentration that's required to produce sufficient amount of uh, receptor interaction or tissue damage. 
Um, when we talk about volume of distribution, uh, and I've said this before, I'll say it again, think of yourself as a big bucket, and uh, this big bucket of water and other stuff uh, will develop a concentration with a fixed dose. And that dose concentration, that volume of distribution, uh, is what is uh, a useful term to understand in terms of uh, therapeutic monitoring to make sure that you have sufficient dose to have typically a desired effect. But that same volume of distribution will be uh, important to consider in terms of having sufficient dose uh, and dosage uh, uh, to affect uh, some sort of toxic endpoint. Another factor affecting uh, distribution of toxicants is the cardiac output to the specific tissues. Uh, major uh, organs in terms of cardiac output are liver and kidneys. Uh, uh, these uh, organs uh, get significant blood flow, liters per minute, and uh, these, this blood flow will present toxicants uh, to these organs in very rapid fashion. And so if it is a very reactive toxicant, there is a potential for these organs to sustain some sort of reactive uh, uh, damage and the residual toxic endpoints. We also have to be concerned with the tissue sensitivity of the toxicant. An example of this is uh, adipose tissue is going to, for, for instance, take up certain types of uh, very nonpolar toxicants just because of chemical selectivity and solubilization in those tissues. Uh, the various uh, receptors that we have where we find, for example, certain proteins that bind certain metals uh, when presented with another metal, perhaps a heavy metal with a similar distribution, electronic distribution and charge, uh, might actually, and this is the case uh, with lead, and some uh, calcium transport proteins, uh, lead is a significantly uh, heavier, different uh, reactivity when it does bind with those uh, proteins. It actually uh, binds in a, a very harsh way and sometimes precipitates those proteins uh, out of your blood, causing uh, at least the initial stages of lead toxicosis. We also uh, need to be concerned in the body about uh, the various barriers that inhibit migration. We've introduced these, and I'll have a slide here later about these barriers, the blood-brain barrier, the placental barrier, the blood-memory barrier. All of these uh, uh, might be considered evolutionary strategies to kind of keep us uh, 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 in safe and sane, uh, if you will, upon the normal and natural exposure to nature's toxicants and uh, as well as any sort of industrial uh, or synthetic uh, toxicants that may exist in the environment that we live in. Now in terms of uh, the distribution of toxicants, uh, plasma protein binding, uh, as I've introduced, is important. Uh, it's important uh, if for no other reason that we have significant amounts of uh, serum albumin, uh, again on the order of grams per liter. These toxicants that bind uh, to proteins, uh, this can be uh, somewhat of a good thing in terms of transport. If it's reactive uh, to some of the potential function groups on this protein, uh, this is a protein uh, that uh, we've got plenty of uh, in terms of the concentration, and it can uh, detoxify just because of this binding, get it out of solution, get it away from more sensitive cells, more sensitive uh, receptor sites, uh, sensitive tissues. 
and so in a certain sense this uh, is a uh, the the pawns if you will in the chess game of toxicology uh, these proteins are out there they're in high concentration uh, easily uh, uh, metabolized uh, and easily uh, uh, eliminated this uh, binding can affect uh, distribution. It can also affect the toxicant half-life in the organism. Uh, the free toxicant uh, is uh, going to be in some sort of equilibrium with the bound, and it can be available for some sort of distribution and endpoint effect. Uh, whenever you have binding, uh, thermodynamics is dictating a uh, stability profile of what remains in solution, and hopefully the amount that is bound to the, tox to the protein uh, is uh, sufficient to uh, uh, allow for a non-threshold effect. Uh, I'm sorry, not a non-threshold, a below-threshold or no observed effect level in terms of the concentration in uh, the plasma. A plasma concentration is a good indicator of uh, toxicant concentration at the site of action. You have to remember that in toxicology, you know, quite often we're dealing with uh, live patients, uh, whether it be animals or humans. And we can't necessarily do extraordinarily invasive uh, analyses. We do do some in animal models and testing. For example, uh, we'll radio label certain uh, chemical compounds and look for the distribution. Uh, we can do this uh, in organs via uh, radiography, uh, look for uh, various organ uh, or in organelles where uh, these toxicants might accumulate and, and therefore have some sort of effect and we can look at the morphological and, and uh, uh, endpoint effects uh, with uh, destructive tissue monitoring and sacrifice of the animal. Uh, we don't do this now in humans. Uh, uh, we do do it occasionally with autopsies of individuals that have succumbed from various poisonings. But typically what we find is that plasma concentration is the indicator. So for example, next time you do take a medicine or drug, uh, again, pull the uh, physician desk re reference uh, insert. Uh, you will see uh, indications of plasma concentrations, uh, therapeutic concentrations uh, in, in various uh, scenarios of, uh, of dosage, uh, and uh, perhaps some warnings in terms of uh, overdosing or underdosing, especially, for example, with uh, antibiotics. Uh, we talked about the apparent volume of distribution, V sub D, and it's the total volume of body fluids in which uh, the toxicant is dist distributed. And so the V sub D, uh, the volume is going to be uh, smaller for uh, smaller people. So what does that mean in terms of an equivalent dose to a small person and a large person? It means that the, uh, the plasma concentration is going to be smaller for the larger person. Uh, pharmaceutical uh, manufacturers have some concern about uh, the size of the individuals, for example, children's doses or even adult doses uh, for smaller women or larger men, for example, and as well for their various types of uh, 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 chemicals, especially ones that might have some lipophilicity, uh, your body mass index, uh, your BMI, and maybe many of us have know what that means, but it's essentially it's an indicator of your muscle mass to your fat mass. Uh, we want that number to be lower than, I believe, 28. Uh, for many of us, we achieve that. For many of us, it's a struggle. But this is because we vary in terms of our bodily makeups, this varies uh, the uh, potential dosage of an individual and how that plasma concentration for good therapeutics is achieved. 
This uh, diagram from a medical textbook, uh, medical physiology textbook, gives you an idea of the numeric breakdown. And again, this is an estimate of uh, uh, where the body fluid components are. Again, I told you we're a big bucket, but we're actually a fairly complex bu bucket when you consider the fact that we have bone, dense connective tissues. We have uh, transcellular water, and this is the water that's uh, in the big bags that we call uh, organs. Um, we have cell water, this water that is actually inside individual cells, such as uh, red blood cells. But this gives you kind of an estimate breakdown of where all that water occurs. Um, these sorts of diagrams are useful in physiology. Uh, they're compartment diagrams, and so you see nice boxes with arrows. We'll use similar sorts of approaches when we talk about environmental models. For example, uh, a pond to the atmosphere. Uh, we can draw a box uh, indicating the pond and some arrows crossing it into the atmosphere, for example, of escape of volatile components. Uh, what we find in terms of total uh, body water that in uh, men it's about uh, 55% to 60% of uh, the body weight in adult males, and in adult females, uh, a little bit less, about 50 to 55% on average. In terms of overall body fat, uh, women uh, have uh, uh, a few percent more, uh, sometimes as much as 10 or 15% more uh, because of just different genetics and different body composition. We are concerned uh, with uh, hepatic uh, uh, treatment of uh, toxicants, so distribution to and from the liver is important. As I've introduced, the portal vein allows this first pass uh, digestive route, and so we get uh, tremendous potential exposure of these exogenous compounds, potential toxicants, typically in low dose, but sometimes in an intoxicating dose. And so because of this and our survival, um, because we have high exchange and nutrient uptake, and this is again the survival of the organism, uh, the portal vein, which drains uh, the gastrointestinal tract, um, takes those resources uh, directly to the liver for uh, metabolic output. This high cardiac output uh, ensures uh, a major potential for toxicant interaction and uh, then for systemic exposure because we have such a high transport phenomenon occurring in terms of GIT to, to the liver. As I've indicated, uh, we do have also the potential for enterohepatic recirculation. I've got a uh, flash animation that we constructed to show you a little bit of how this happens. Um, obviously, uh, those uh, toxicants that are not well processed uh, by the liver but are uh, uh, eliminated through the bile ducts in the liver back into uh, the intestinal tract have the ability to be reabsorbed, uptake by the portal vein, reintroduced to the liver, and start this recirculation. What does this do in terms of the endpoint? It has the potential for increasing the half-life because you're not eliminating, you're just recirculating this. This can also happen with uh, metabolites, uh, metabolites, liver metabolites that are actually also uh, uh, eliminated through the bile duct system. Uh, and this has a lot, uh, quite often, with uh, fairly uh, nonpolar metabolites that are actually uh, emulsified with the bile acids. And again, they are uh, discharged in with the bile acids uh, into the gastrointestinal tract. So we find that we have this potential recirculation of blood, 
uh, from the, the uh, digestive tract to the liver to the bile ducts, back to the intestine, back to the portal vein, back to the blood. And so this cycling repeat. And again, on the website, I have a flash animation that might help you kind of visually understand that particular recirculation. What I've done here, and again, this is not anatomy and physiology class. Most of us have seen uh, at least a piece of liver in the supermarket. Uh, I encourage you, if you don't have uh, this sort of uh, biology background, to, to go spend a few bucks and buy a piece of liver from the supermarket. Uh, not necessarily to eat, because most toxicologists don't eat liver, and we don't eat liver because this is the primary waste treatment organ of the body, and we don't eat kidney either. Uh, but I invite you to take uh, uh, and, and do a, a kitchen top uh, uh, dissection, uh, and it's very similar to what we did in the laboratory here. Uh, we retrieved a full liver, multi-lobe uh, liver from a cow, a bovine species. Um, just to give you an idea, this is a very large, it takes uh, uh, two arms to carry this uh, significantly sized organ. Uh, it's a fairly large animal. But you can see here on this uh, figure, is uh, the gallbladder. The gallbladder is a, uh, a storage bladder uh, for the bile as it's produced from the liver. What this gallbladder allows us to do is store bile so that when we eat, especially a fatty meal, we have a reserve of bile to assist in emulsifying uh, that fat. Uh, those uh, of you that have uh, a friend, loved one, relative, or someone that you know that has had their gallbladder removed, know that these individuals have to be careful about the amount of fat they eat in the diet uh, at one time. Uh, they will get some indigestion because um, the fat remains uh, somewhat undigested. Uh, it gets uh, eliminated back into uh, the gastrointestinal tract and there's a lot of bacterial action, uncomfortable gas. Uh, and so this is a situation for uh, those individuals that have their uh, gallbladder removed, typically because of uh, calcifications or gallstones uh, that occur uh, from the uh, bile acids uh, in the liver uh, and passing and residing in the gallbladder. Uh, in terms of uh, the hepatic fine structure, when you do your kitchen top uh, autopsy, this is maybe a 5 or 10x magnification. Uh, you can see a lot of this structure with your naked eye. Use a sharp knife, and uh, what you'll see is various things like bile ducts, uh, various venous structures in terms of blood flow. This is a highly vascularized organ. Uh, you'll see the liver lobules, uh, this fine structure here, these little darkened circles. Uh, in target organ toxicology, we'll go in on the, the cellular basis in terms of describing what these subunits are. But each one of these liver lobules in here uh, are actually uh, replicating sub replicated subunits, uh, uh, liver hepatocytes, that uh, um, actually are little factories in terms of metabolizing the chemicals uh, that uh, are uh, we are exposed to uh, in uh, our diets uh, and, and uh, uh, respiratory and dermal uptake in terms of systemic impacts through blood flow. I'll also tell you that uh, when we are examining models of intoxication and potential for metabolism, since the liver is the primary organ for metabolism, many of the chemical biotransformations which is the title of the next lecture, will occur in the liver. And so to model this in an in vitro experiment, in other words, in a test tube or typically in a petri dish, as opposed to in a living animal, 
in a laboratory study where we take isolated hepatocytes, and typically rat hepatocytes, we grow them up in cell culture and we introduce a toxicant, we can watch those cells metabolize those toxicants, and so we can look at the different chemical conformations from uh, these isolated uh, rat hepatocytes. We can model distribution uh, with uh, in this, uh, an engineering diagram, and uh, so those of you that are, come from more of an engineering or a computer background uh, will find these sorts of diagrams uh, 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 useful in terms of understanding. But in terms of uh, our toxicant coming into an organism, uh, we have the potential for multiple pathways. Uh, we can have direct uh, interactions uh, um, in terms of uh, leading up to some sort of interaction with a cell or uh, uh, excretion. We can have it go off and be shunted to storage, especially for lipophilic or those uh, uh, types of uh, chemicals that store quite easily. Uh, they can be biotransformed. Uh, typically, uh, the liver or the kidney is important in this particular process. These might form metabolites, and we'll talk about how these metabolites are formed, the primary pathways, phase one and phase two. But uh, for example, and I've indicated that uh, urinary excretion is a primary uh, elimination route for detoxification. What do we need in terms of urinary uh, elimination? We need something to be uh, pretty reasonably water-soluble. And so if you look at the basic uh, endpoint of uh, metabolism, we want to turn greasy molecules into salty molecules. Uh, greasy molecules are not particularly water-soluble. Salty molecules are. So we'll talk about that next time in biotransformation. But this diagram gives you an idea of the multiple pathways, and I think it's important to recognize that our bodies have potential for multiple pathways simultaneously. And so you might find in a particular uh, toxin that there will be one, two, three, four, maybe five or more uh, metabolites or pathways that are occurring simultaneously. So it's fairly complex. Sometimes it's extremely simple, but more than likely, it's of the more complex variety. Now, let's switch over to storage, and this is an accumulation of toxicants in specific uh, tissues. Uh, we've introduced the binding of toxicants to plasma proteins. Uh, as I said, albumin is most abundant. It's a common binder of uh, toxicants to transport and detoxification. We can have storage in bones. Uh, typically, these are heavy metals. Uh, strontium or radionuclide uh, will store in bones. We worry about strontium from uh, whether it's uh, nuclear power or fallout from the uh, nuclear testing in the 50s and 60s um, as being kind of potential uptake uh, into bones, into uh, food products like milk, uh, cow's milk. And so, for example, in the post-Chernobyl days, uh, the plume of radioactivity uh, dropped over some Scandinavian countries, Finland and Sweden being two of them where there was great concern about uh, the dairy industry there and preservation of a self, uh, safe and nutritious uh, dairy uh, food uh, supply. We can have storage in the liver. Uh, there's high degree of blood flow. Uh, there's significant amount of fat uh, in, in the uh, liver. Uh, some uh, medical uh, scenarios and intoxication, such as alcoholism, will cause even more fat to accumulate uh, in the liver. It's also a biotransformation organ. 
so we can actually uh, have uh, misprints or misbiotransformations that will transform it into something that does uh, some a little bit more damage, and sometimes that damage is in the kidney itself. We can have storage in the kidneys. We can have storage in our uh, adipose tissue, uh, and this is again primarily lipophilic compounds. I'm going to do a couple of case studies here just to illustrate uh, some of the storage uh, and uh, the release uh, of this. As you can imagine, if we do have storage, uh, that might be a part of our survival strategy uh, to sequester these away from active metabolism and then perhaps bleed this uh, uh, um, toxicant out at a very, very slow rate, a very low concentration half-life uh, over a long period of time. Uh, again, the uh, idea there is to limit the exposure of critical tissues uh, in terms of reactive endpoints uh, to, to some toxicants. Uh, this was a, a case I was involved in in Petaluma, California. It's a town in Northern California, an area. Uh, tremendous amount of poultry production for California, not only for uh, uh, fryers in terms of uh, uh, the chicken that you eat, but also for egg production. Uh, those of you have probably understand that uh, there are various ways to do egg production, but one of them is uh, a very high density operation such as these. This one uh, in this particular uh, photograph where we have uh, several chickens in a, in a, in a cage. Uh, typically what we find in terms of managing these in production agriculture is uh, these birds are cycling uh, through estrus and uh, the producers try to get all of the different chickens in the same estrus cycle. And so what they do is they force the molt uh, that is uh, uh, associated with uh, uh, the avian species. They force a molt uh, typically by uh, changing the light uh, so it seems as if a season is changing. Uh, so they'll shutter some of these hen houses. Uh, they can change the water or accessibility to water or food. Uh, typically, these large-scale environmental changes will uh, induce these molts. During the molt, uh, it's a fairly uh, ugly process. It's a, perhaps an annual rebirthing of this particular species. Uh, they lose feathers. Uh, they can lose a tremendous amount of body mass. Uh, it's a fairly uh, large-scale physical change in this particular species. As it turns out, with chickens, uh, and especially modern, uh, uh, modern varieties of uh, egg-laying uh, egg uh, chickens, uh, we find uh, that uh, they are extremely good egg producers. They're, they're bred for their productivity. They, they lay a lot of eggs, uh, and it's typical of this particular uh, species. Uh, as it turns out, chickens have a breastbone. Uh, many of you that have ever uh, had a whole chicken or even a turkey at Thanksgiving know that there's a substantial breastbone in, in these animals. That breastbone is actually uh, used as a uh, calcium resource in terms of egg laying. There's a tremendous amount of calcium that is shuttled uh, into the egg itself, and so animals that are in production have to be fed uh, calcium supplements. And this is typically as calcium carbonate or as oyster shell, for example. If you've ever had chickens, uh, you know that you have to have one of these uh, out in terms of the chickens will actually uh, feed on these uh, mineral materials because they crave the calcium because of calcium turnover in their own bodies. And so chickens in normal egg laying cycle about 50% of their bone mass in normal egg production. 
And so the storage and then release of whatever might be stored in the bone material uh, is very, uh, very active. In this particular case, uh, this was a molt gone wrong. Uh, there was a 20% death rate. Uh, the, uh, it was an uncontrolled molt. molt. Uh, they actually uh, lost tremendous amounts of their uh, bone calcium. It was about a 20% death rate, and in a large-scale chicken operation, this can be hundreds if not thousands of chickens uh, that succumbed. Uh, give you an idea, uh, they lost so much body uh, calcium that their bones became extremely uh, flaccid and brittle. Uh, I can tell you that uh, they would break easier than a pencil. Um, you can see uh, in this photo um, a chicken that uh, actually uh, is sliding out of the egg slot at the bottom of the, uh, the particular egg bin in this particular case. Uh, what we found in terms of the death rate, uh, losing bone mass in and of itself is not necessarily lethal. Uh, what we found was that these chickens uh, may have succumbed to heavy metal toxicosis because of the accumulated heavy metals uh, at low dose that accumulated in their body uh, calcium stores, uh, the oyster shell, the mineral uh, calcium uh, phosphates and calcium uh, carbonates that they are fed uh, do have trace amounts of heavy metal, normal natural uh, uh, heavy metals that occur in these minerals. Um, they can accumulate in bone mass. When it is shuttled out in very high concentration, it can shut down various uh, uh, protein blood transport processes. We found significant levels of, uh, of lead and vanadium, vanadium uh, substituting uh, for uh, phosphorus. Uh, vanadium uh, as vanadyl can actually interrupt calcium transport. Calcium transport is required uh, for cell energy uh, cycling, uh, can actually affect a, a neuromuscular uh, paralysis. Another case study in, uh, in a very similar uh, situation, different causative factors, but uh, similar uh, in terms of the overall endpoint of lead poisoning. Uh, this came from the mobilization of bone stores uh, during a thyrotoxicosis uh, episode. This came out of the American Journal of Industrial Medicine. Uh, the case describes a 37-year-old female smoker with a history of childhood uh, lead exposure. This exposure included PICA, which is childhood dirt eating. You may or may not have heard of this particular uh, phenomenon of children that just eat dirt. Uh, they uh, have found that this has a lot to do with mineral metabolism. Uh, there's also some behavior aspects to it. Uh, this individual was also uh, a paint chip eater, and again, this has a lot to do with uh, um, poverty and lack of nutrition, lack of calcium in the diet. Uh, kids, for whatever reason, and infants uh, even, will find that some of the old paints uh, in uh, old houses uh, will have calcium and they'll develop a habit of eating paint chips. Uh, this individual also had some lead exposure as an adult, and like many of us that have tried to rehabilitate old houses, there is a potential for exposure to lead paint in old houses. Uh, this individual presented uh, to her doctor with insomnia, weight loss, uh, muscle ache, and a tremor. Uh, on examination, uh, they found that she had uh, high blood lead levels, uh, 51 micrograms per deciliter. Uh, microgram per deciliter is a blood uh, concentration. Uh, it's, uh, a deciliter is one-tenth of a liter. You'll see this unit uh, in many uh, clinical diagnostic uh, concentrations. 
Um, the erythrocyte uh, protoporphyrin EP um, and uh, uh, levels were uh, elevated as well, and this is an indicator of uh, lead toxicosis. Uh, this individual also had an enlarged thyroid. Um, they uh, did a bone scan. Uh, the bone scan uh, by uh, X-ray analysis uh, revealed that she had 154 parts uh, per million uh, in uh, uh, one bone and 253 parts per million in another. Uh, the normal concentration is down around 5 or 10 micrograms per gram. So this is a pretty significant concentration in her bones. Um, as it also was uh, in, uh, demonstrated on clinical workup, this individual had uh, hyperthyroidism, uh, and that was indicated by her blood workup and thyroid levels. Uh, your thyroid gland are just below uh, your Adam's apple. Um, they consist of uh, your thyroid and your parathyroid um, uh, glands, and this is a primary metabolic uh, calcium regulating gland as well. Uh, this individual underwent radioactive iodine testing to uh, actually uh, look at the, um, uh, the thyroid and the parathyroid. You can see the uh, bright blips here on the particular scan uh, associated with this type of test. Uh, radioactive iodine uptake uh, uses uh, radioactive uh, but short half-life uh, iodine. This individual uh, demonstrated uh, uh, thyroid levels and uh, enlarged thyroid consistent with Graves' disease, uh, a dysfunctional uh, thy thyroid. Her uh, serum osteocalcin levels, uh, this is a, a bone protein, uh, was elevated, uh, and this indicated uh, increased bone turnover, and so she was hypermetabolizing her bone calcium. Uh, they actually treated this individual uh, with uh, what's referred to as thyroid ablation therapy, essentially trying to destroy her thyroid because it is overactive. Um, these individuals will then go on uh, medications, thyroid medications like thyroxin uh, that they take daily to, to manage their thyroid hormone levels. Half a year later, this individual uh, had uh, significantly reduced uh, blood lead levels. It was down to 19 uh, micrograms per deciliter, and the osteocalcin levels uh, were normal. So this indicated that they actually were successful in uh, reversing the thyroid-driven uh, uh, metabolism of lead from the uh, um, individual's uh, bones. Uh, the bone stores were unchanged, as you can imagine. This is a lifetime accumulation, but at least it's sequestered and stored away where it can't necessarily do a lot of damage. A year later, the blood lead levels for this individual were at 17. Still high, uh, the uh, blood lead levels uh, in terms of early childhood uh, levels of uh, uh, maximum uh, or levels of, uh, of action are 10 micrograms uh, per deciliter, and we'll talk about childhood lead poisoning. But this is a, a very interesting case study in that a medical condition, in this case Graves' disease, uh, led to the release of the bone stores of lead uh, during this particular medical episode. The routes of exposure that uh, we are dealing with in terms of distribution and storage of toxicants. Uh, we remember that the GI tract uh, exposure sends the toxicants directly to the liver uh, for that first pass detoxification. We also have the potential uh, release of uh, toxicants uh, from the digestive system into the lymph system. 
Uh, respiratory skin exposure can have greater systemic effects. Uh, why might that be? It might be because the fact that it takes a little bit longer to get to that primary detoxification organ. So it has to go throughout a significant amount of pathway uh, through other organs uh, prior to its actual sequestration or uh, potential uh, metabolism in the uh, liver. Uh, the rate of metabolism of a particular compound, and this is thermodynamics and biochemistry, uh, that obviously can impact uh, systemic effects. Some slow metabolisms uh, that, that uh, uh, for example, uh, next time you do take a ph pharmaceutical, uh, the dosage schedule will indicate the metabolic rate of that particular chemical compound. If you have to take it three times a day, it means that it is metabolized relatively fast, and so to keep your plasma concentration up, you need to keep taking this because your system is doing a good job metabolizing it, getting rid of it. If you get rid of something that is a therapeutic medicine, it's not doing its therapy, and so you'll take it more often. There are other uh, uh, medications that you might take once a day, and those will be typically ones that are metabolized a bit slower and they allow for a uh, volume of distribution and plasma concentration sufficient for a therapeutic end effect. In terms of our disposition, uh, these are chemical reactions, and if you remember from uh, uh, pr uh, freshman chemistry, we introduced uh, to you uh, rates of chemical reactions, and so we can think of uh, the disposition of chemicals as rates of chemical reactions, rates of crossing of membranes from one compartment to another, one box to another, for example, uh, from the interstitial fluid at the site of an injury or dermal uptake uh, across, for example, into the vascular system, uh, into another compartment, maybe uh, referred to as the liver. Uh, all of these can be put together in a disposition model. Uh, we can break these compartments up as, for example, blood, fat, bone, liver, kidneys, brain. Uh, we can take a look at modeling the relationship, and we do these sometimes with animal studies, uh, looking at uh, the appearance and disappearance of chemicals uh, in different organs and different compartments uh, over time, and that's critical. When we do this analysis, we can graph, as we have here on the x-axis time and the log of the concentration. Uh, uh, we do log concentration because that is good for uh, the primary or the dominant kinetics, uh, which is first-order kinetics that we observe in uh, metabolism. And so this particular uh, uh, graph would be a one-compartment open model. So we're just looking, for instance, at the disappearance of a of a contaminant, of a toxicant uh, in blood plasma, for example. But if we start opening up uh, more compartments, and for example, uh, two compartments, uh, it enters the blood and it goes to another compartment, for example, the, litter, the, the liver, uh, these uh, uh, disposition models become uh, a little bit more complex. And as you can imagine, when we do things like IEUBK or the integrated uptake uh, biokinetic model for blood lead, and we'll introduce here in a moment, that we can get very complex very rapidly, and it requires a tremendous amount of input and analysis to get an idea of where everything is going, the different compartments, the different rates of transport and metabolism across these different compartments. So the idea here is that uh, 
uh, we have a, a toxicant in this particular model that enters the blood and it goes to the liver and then it is uh, excreted uh, or returned. Uh, what we find is that uh, overall that we uh, have the blood uh, coming down in time, but the concentration in the liver is going up over time. Both of these uh, decreasing over time because of half-life and uh, elimination of metabolism. But again, the idea is that we're trying to model fairly complex phenomenon. Pharmacokinetics is important. It's important in drug design, but it's also important in understanding toxicology and the rate of impact. Uh, there are many intoxications uh, that uh, you may have experienced yourself uh, that uh, take some time. If you have uh, ever suffered from high dose exposure to alcohol because you have uh, your, uh, you drink alcohol, uh, you'll notice that there is a time to metabolism. And typically, that's on the order of hours. In terms of your blood alcohol levels, um, there are advisories in terms of when it is safe to drive, in terms of uh, impaired uh, 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 driving ability uh, due to concentrations. And typically, this is a significant amount of time with overconsumption of alcohol. Another case study here, and this is uh, uh, another heavy metal, this is copper disposition uh, in the ovine species or sheep. Uh, in this particular uh, case, uh, these uh, sheep are exposed to a copper sulfate uh, feed supplement uh, at high, high concentrations. Uh, sheep are actually fairly uh, sensitive to uh, copper. It's a strong oxidizing agent, and there may be uh, uh, may lead to an acute hemolytic crisis uh, from this oxidation pathway. Uh, in target organ toxicology, we'll talk about oxidative stress and how uh, these uh, potential oxidative pathways can yield things like uh, acute hemolytic crisis. Hemolytic crisis means that the red blood cells uh, are lysed, releasing hemoglobin into the blood itself. Uh, icterus is a medical term for jaundice uh, because uh, you start actually uh, also uh, breaking down the cells in the liver. Um, uh, releasing um, bile substrates uh, into the blood as well. Hemoglobin uh, urea, in terms of hemoglobin in the blood itself. Uh, hemoglobinemia, in terms of hemoglobin in the blood supply outside of the red blood cells. Tubular nephrosis, uh, nephrosis meaning uh, death to a particular type of cell in the kidney, and we'll define that in target organ toxicology and nephrotoxicity. In terms of uh, this particular disposition, you can see in this, uh, you can see the uh, um, jaundice and, and hemoglobin hemoglobinemia uh, uh, in this particular animal in terms of its soft tissues being discolored. Uh, it lyses these erythrocytes, it frees hemoglobin, and causes what's commonly referred to in medicine as, as a hemolytic crisis. Uh, hemoglobin is toxic uh, to kidney. Uh, Parenchymal cells, uh, actually uh, parenchymal cells uh, are the cells that uh, in any organ uh, that do actually do the function. So if you think of the water balloon uh, model of a kidney or your liver, uh, those cells that are inside that are actually doing the organismal work are these particular types of uh, parenchymal cells. Um, they lead to kidney pathology, the production of a darkened kidney, uh, referred to as gunmetal kidney and uh, subsequent death. 
This is what gunmetal kidney looks like. Uh, and again, in your home uh, kitchen uh, 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 dissection of the kidney, uh, you can do this with a chicken kidney. You can do it with a, a, a bovine or cow kidney uh, obtained from uh, your, your meat vendor. Uh, you can see the substructure, and uh, let me tell you that, uh, as you can imagine, uh, a kidney does not look like this inside. It is typically uh, pink uh, and white uh, fleshy material. Uh, we'll talk about kidney substructure and filtration mechanisms in our targeting toxicology le lecture, but uh, you can just tell just from a morphological and color analysis of this particular uh, uh, disposition that this is not good in terms of uh, kidney function, which is extraordinarily important in terms of uh, uh, maintaining health. Now, we've introduced at several points uh, in the course thus far the various structural barriers uh, that are important in terms of uh, transport of toxicants from one compartment to another. Uh, the most important of these is the blood-brain barrier. And in this particular barrier, the brain has these specialized cells called astrocytes, and I've shown a graphic of what they look like. Uh, they function in that they limit passage of water-soluble uh, molecules from the capillary endothelium uh, into the uh, actual brain material, uh, the neural neuron space of uh, the brain. Uh, the way they do this is quite easy, and the way all of these barriers uh, work is that these astrocytes have high lipid content, and so they present a lipid barrier. Uh, and so, for example, if you are doing drug design, you are going to uh, worry about perhaps making sure that uh, your compound is lipophilic enough that it would pass the blood-brain barrier uh, if, in fact, the therapeutic target was uh, in, the, in the brain. In the placental barrier, uh, we have uh, several layers uh, of uh, uh, structural barrier cells uh, between the maternal and fetal circulatory vessels. In the placenta, the same sort of thing. Uh, this helps uh, minimize the potential exposure of the developing uh, conceptus uh, from uh, the dietary exposure of toxicants uh, from the uh, uh, mother. Uh, we also have a, another barrier uh, that we've introduced, and that is uh, the blood mammary barrier. Same sort of thing. This is for secondary exposure. Uh, not all of this, but again, the, the same sort of thing in terms of uh, lipid, high lipid content cells uh, providing a uh, stopping or slowing down of certain uh, types of chemical compounds. This is another case study. Uh, this is our first introduction of uh, uh, lipophilic uh, toxicants. Most of us have heard of PCBs, uh, uh, polychlorinated biphenyl compounds. Perhaps not many of us have heard of PBBs or polybrominated uh, biphenyls. As it turns out, PBBs, and I've given a generic uh, chemical structure here, this is the biphenyl, the two benzene rings linked here, the general biphenyl group. Polybrominated means that at any point uh, on the periphery here, we can have uh, bromines uh, in the same way that for PCBs, we would have chlorines out here. You can see that, uh, in fact, PCBs, and the reason why they're called biphenyls is because there's a multitude of compounds. So it's PCBs and PC, uh, uh, PBBs uh, because there are various uh, moieties, and we'll talk about this in our dioxins and related compounds uh, uh, special topic lecture, 
But uh, this is a category of compounds, and typically uh, there are multiple different uh, uh, levels of bromination or chlorination uh, in a particular environmental sample. Uh, these particular chemicals were man-made chemicals back in the 70s were used as a fire retardant uh, in plastics and in a variety of consumer products. Uh, we didn't know as much as we know now about their uh, persistence, bioaccumulation, and toxicity in the environment. Uh, it's a relatively stable substance. Uh, it does get biodegraded uh, to a degree, but that's a very slow process and very similar to PCBs. Uh, it's insoluble in water, but highly soluble in fat tissues. Uh, we discontinued manufacturing of PBBs uh, in the United States in 1976. Uh, this particular case study came from Critical Reviews in Toxicology, a 1985 uh, paper. This is a pretty big incident. This appeared on the nightly news. What happened was that in 1973, the year I graduated from high school, by the way, uh, what happened was uh, a chemical manufacturer that sold uh, a product called Firemaster, uh, these PBBs, uh, and they also sold another compound called magnesium oxide, uh, which was Nutramaster. It was a feed supplement. Uh, in the factory, there was a mislabeling event associated with the bags these products went in, and some uh, bags that actually contained PBBs, uh, polybrominated biphenyls, actually went out uh, labeled as uh, uh, this Nutramaster feed supplement. Uh, worst case scenario, if there ever was one, uh, there were about 10 to 20 50-pound bags of this uh, material. In feed uh, plant operations, typically these nutrients are blended in with feed. Uh, these feed uh, shops then distribute the, pro the uh, final product feed to various uh, animal livestock operations, uh, in this particular case dairy and cattle operations, uh, but other ones as well. It was not recognized until long after this particular chemical is not an acute toxin. Uh, it's something that develops uh, over time. Uh, it does have the same presentation. Uh, we introduced uh, the uh, president of Russia and its chloracne. It takes a little bit of time for it to develop these uh, clinical signs and symptoms. It's an, typically not an acute toxin. Uh, very sharp veterinarians uh, that were involved were examining uh, these animals and came up with uh, uh, a good clinical diagnosis of what it might be. And in fact, the chemical analysis proved what in fact it was. Uh, what the problem was is that it had now entered the human food chain. Uh, by the time the mix-up was discovered in 1974, uh, this polybrominated biphenyls had entered the uh, human food chain through milk and other dairy products, various beef products, and uh, contaminated swine, sheep, chicken, and eggs. And so this is a highly productive agricultural area, and there was a tremendous distribution of this. There are about 500 Michigan farms uh, that were quarantined, having been uh, uh, purchased uh, feed materials from these particular vendors. Uh, the Michigan Farm Bureau was involved. Uh, there was approximately 30,000 cattle, 4,500 swine, 1,500 sheep, and 1.5 million chickens that had to be destroyed. Uh, and there was about 100, uh, 800 tons of animal feed. 18,000 pounds of cheese, 2,500 pounds of butter, 5 million eggs, 34,000 pounds of dried milk products. 
typically we would uh, incinerate or bury these materials. This particular photo shows a burial plot probably for the animal carcasses. Uh, I can't read the, the uh, script on it either. I do know it's from the PCB Michigan incident. Now the worry there was because this has entered the human food chain, obviously there was animal impacts and animal effects in terms of animal health and mortality. Uh, the bigger problem was what effect this had on uh, the thousands if not tens of thousands of humans uh, that had been exposed to this and particularly ones in the, lo the uh, lo local uh, environment that uh, might have had uh, local uh, high exposure as opposed to those that might be out in the greater distributed food system. Uh, some of the residents uh, in the uh, local environment complained of nausea, abdominal pain, loss of appetite, joint pain, uh, fatigue and weakness. It was very hard to do cause effect on some of the clinical signs and symptoms. Uh, when we think we have been poisoned, uh, we can develop all sorts of uh, problems. Uh, it's a very disturbing kind of uh, uh, psychological trauma, if nothing else. Uh, and we've seen that uh, in history uh, uh, and in recent history as well. There was some stronger evidence in terms of cause-effect that these PBBs caused some skin problems, the chloracne that's uh, typically associated with these kind of uh, uh, chlorinated or halogenated hydrocarbons. Uh, some workers exposed to PBs uh, uh, by breathing and skin contact uh, also uh, developed acne even though they necess didn't necessarily eat the food. Um, this is a little bit hard to see. This is pulled out of environmental health perspectives analysis. This is uh, determinants of PBB serum decay among women in this Michigan uh, PBB cohort. Uh, they are still analyzing this uh, basically because of the long half-life of this. This is a modeling estimate of the half-life and years of serum PBB in women in various scenarios. This is the column, the initial serum uh, polybrominated by phenyl in parts per billion. It's two and five, two and five. And this is the body mass index. And so for uh, relatively low BMI women, less than 23, um, we find uh, that um, uh, versus uh, a higher BMI or higher body fat, greater than 23 uh, body mass index, that the decay rate uh, increases, uh, that I'm sorry, the decay rate uh, changes, but the half-life is what's significant. For the low concentration, the low BMI women, uh, relatively uh, short-term uh, half-lives, four years, uh, eight years for twice the concentration. Uh, for um, the high BMI uh, women, uh, five or six years, uh, 22 years. And so significant changes in half-life in terms of the concentration effects, the storage uh, and distribution release of this uh, particular lipophilic compound over time. What we find in terms of retrospective analysis, and this is retrospective epidemiologic analysis of the various individuals uh, that uh, were known to have PBB concentrations uh, and been exposed, there are increased rates of neurologic, immunologic, and dermatologic uh, m uh, musculoskeletal effects uh, in this particular uh, analysis cohort. Uh, none of the effects showed a consistent dose-response relationship with serum PBB levels, uh, so this is a little bit of a confounding data. And this probably is more uh, uh, reflective of the genetic variability of the cohort, uh, gender variability, dose variability, overall health variability, uh, and dietary variability in terms of those who eat uh, certain types of food in higher concentrations. 
There were uh, numerous negative uh, correlation study results uh, as well. Uh, they did find that the spontaneous abortion rates were elevated in uh, second-generation women uh, that were born after uh, and to, to moms that were exposed in that uh, polybrominated biphenyl incident. Well, this brings up the case, and we've seen the modeling in, in that particular retrospective analysis in terms of half-life of uh, the use of models in risk assessment. And sometimes uh, the, the biggest challenge in developing a model for risk assessment uh, is coming up with uh, an idea of the modeling the complexity of the organism in terms of all the different compartments that transport uh, uh, dynamics across membranes uh, from one compartment to another. Uh, what we try to do is, is to simplify this complexity. It's an approach to understanding this exposure linkage to human disease. And we do this for a typically a risk assessment process. We model in anticipation of potential risk so we know what risk level is acceptable. Okay? Zero risk is not only expensive, but it's near impossible. So if we have to have an acceptable risk, where do we strike that balance between risk and benefit in terms of where we put our national efforts, our treasure, uh, in terms of the complex natural environment and also the man-made environment in terms of synthetic toxins? These models are a proxy for situational specific clinical data, okay? So when we're looking at uh, blood lead in children, we're not going out and dosing children uh, with blood, uh, with lead, excuse me. Uh, we actually are modeling this uh, in the best model that we have. We can do these uh, very sophisticated models for uh, toxicants that we have a significant amount of information about. And so this is rare, actually. Uh, if you consider the hundreds, if not thousands, of common toxicants, it is rare that we have enough physiological data, enough knowledge about metabolic cycles, interactions, toxic endpoints, all of the different uh, interfaces uh, in an organism. These approaches, uh, in terms of modeling all of these different relationships, are called physiologically based pharmacokinetic models. Okay? And they are the best that we can do. We can get rates of transfer in between, for example, blood and liver. We can program these into these various models and take these exercises and use them in risk assessment. In terms of predicting blood lead levels, blood lead has been uh, a problem for well over a century. We'll talk about that in, in uh, uh, some of our uh, case studies here. Uh, the integrated exposure uptake biokinetic model for lead in children uh, is uh, the most famous of these. Um, it actually was explored uh, and validated or revalidated in a National Academy study just uh, uh, about a year ago. Uh, in fact, uh, they used some of the blood lead data from North Idaho and the Bunker Hill, a case study that we will talk about in this course, uh, to validate that particular model. Uh, the model software is downloadable. It's a Windows-based uh, module. It's fairly straightforward for uh, students at this level of their studies. Uh, uh, I give you the URL in there. Uh, go ahead. The model itself is downloadable for the computer of your choice. Uh, as well the uh, basic instructions. I don't want you to think that you need to be an expert in the operation of IEUBK, but you need to know some of its capabilities, how some of the inputs can be varied, and typically I will instruct you in terms of your exam to leave all of the settings as default and ask you to change or indicate that you might want to change a few of the exposure variables to see how that might affect your risk assessment.
Another one that's also useful, and uh, I am not going to detail whether or not you have to use one or the other uh, on, the, on your risk analysis. Uh, this one's a little bit easier in that it's a spreadsheet-driven uh, macro set uh, called Lead Spread. It's uh, uh, from the California EPA, um, and uh, Lead Spread is also uh, downloadable. It's a little bit uh, better in terms of diversity of uh, food and food exposure, uh, coming up with very similar and correlated values to uh, IEUBK as a model. The IUBK model, I'll use a couple of slides here just to give you some background on how we develop this model and how we get it actually working for what we need it to do. It does attempt to predict uh, blood lead levels for children, and these are children that are exposed to lead in their environment. It allows users to input uh, various relevant uh, absorption parameters. Uh, most users will actually uh, leave the defaults because many of the defaults are from the peer-reviewed scientific literature. For example, the fraction of lead absorbed from water uh, that has been established in the literature is not anything that you might want to change unless you are a researcher looking at variable absorption rates. Uh, the inputs from using the inputs that you put into IEBK, the model will calculate and recalculate various equations uh, that uh, allow you to estimate the potential for uh, blood lead levels that uh, at particular age or age groups in children. And so we can look at, uh, and this is all done by dietary exposure. Uh, and the dietary patterns, the intake of water on a age basis, on a weight basis, appropriate, appropriate with average uh, weights for years. You can do it in segments of months or years of a particular uh, cohort of children. It's a very useful uh, analysis. And given the fact that there has been a tremendous amount of uh, lead uh, medical data that has appeared in the last uh, decade or so that suggests, uh, among other things, there may be no safe level for lead exposure, uh, that it is important that we have a good understanding of a predictability of environmental lead to blood lead levels in children such that we can minimize the potential impact at a very critical stage of these kids' uh, physical and mental development. Uh, this measured blood concentration uh, is not only an indicator of exposure, but it's uh, uh, widely used as an indicator to look at future health problems. Uh, for example, uh, we have data now that shows blood lead concentrations directly correlate with things like learning ability and IQ, as well as some behavior problems. Uh, childhood blood lead concentrations that are above 10 micrograms per deciliter of blood presents a risk to children's health. There is a move on and a consideration right now to move that down to 10, um, from 10 to either 5 or 2. Uh, some of the problems that exist with that is uh, just the, uh, what, what would happen, for example, from a CDC point of view, if you found a cluster of children with blood lead greater than uh, 2 or 5 levels, they aren't real clear on what they can do in terms of mitigating exposure at these very, very low levels. In IEUBK, there's an exposure component as you pull up the software and it compares blood uh, lead concentrations in various food and environmental media. So there'll be a water input, there'll be a food input. Uh, this is where it might be very site specific. There's an exposure component that look at uh, environmental media and uh, specific concentration rates. And we'll talk about this in terms of lead exposure. But we do find that in children, in their hand-to-mouth activity, and those of you that have children or have been around children, 
uh, maybe for those of you who have been children once yourselves, you know that there's a lot of hand-to-mouth activity with children. Uh, they crawl, toddlers will c crawl on the floor. They're uh, down there with the dust bunnies. And lead in dust is a primary exposure vector for children and an indicator of blood lead levels in children. There's an uptake component uh, that allows uh, lead uptake to be uh, from the lungs or digestive tract uh, and absorbed into the blood. There's a biokinetic component to this particular model that allows for a transfer between various blood and uh, body tissues. Uh, and it also looks at uh, elimination pathways and half-lifes and, and uh, rates of elimination. There is a probability distribution component. And models are all about probabilities of certain outcomes. And so this uh, model uh, allows you to actually input data and come up with a probability of a certain outcome. Uh, for example, uh, a lead, blood lead lead concentration greater than uh, some limit that you might set, which uh, in most cases is a regulatory action level, such as 10 micrograms of lead per uh, deciliter. And use that fraction or that distribution of uh, a population uh, as uh, an action criteria. What we find is that it standardizes, this model standardizes uh, exposure by assuming that the age weighted parameters, the intake uh, of food, are across this particular population that you're studying. It simulates continual growth of the individuals over the period that you're analyzing on a year-to-year -year basis. So that's a complexity that, in fact, your population, it's not a spot analysis. It looks at their dietary exposure. For example, if it's going to be in dust as being the primary vector of exposure, that dust and the pathway, for example, as the child grows older, there will be less hand-to-mouth and less potential exposure. What we'd find is that the IUBK models intended to estimate a <coughs> child's long-term exposure to lead uh, and allow uh, mostly around household lead exposure. This is an occupational uh, lead exposure model. It provides an accurate assessment for the geometric average of lead concentration for a typical child uh, in the age range of six months to seven years. It allows for a basis for estimating the risk of these elevated blood levels uh, to a hypothetical child. It predicts likely changes uh, in the risk of elevated uh, lead concentration from exposure to variable concentrations of dust, soil, water, uh, and airborne uh, lead uh, following some sort of action. So for example, if you're in a risk assessment team, you're looking at a contaminated environment, and you're saying, what is this? If we're going to clean this up, what would be the safe level? You can put several variables into this model and identify what safe levels for cleanup or safer levels of cleanup uh, might be. So it allows you to manage your cleanup efforts, sometimes extraordinarily expensive. The Bunker Hill site in northern Idaho is now approaching $1 billion of management costs uh, over the past several decades. These are significant amounts of, of uh, uh, national treasure, if you will, and uh, they uh, require that we spend money uh, to the best of our abilities in terms of mitigating risk, and we do these models to help in that decision-making process. We use this model to uh, help designate or facilitate calculating uh, these elevated blood levels. Um, it, it helps us ex uh, express what and predict uh, what might happen under different sorts of scenarios. 
Uh, it helps us focus our activities. Uh, should we clean the water? Should we clean the soil? Uh, should we mitigate uh, yards, for example, to mitigate uh, dust deposition that might have happened historically? All of these things help us uh, before we turn a shovel on the ground and it minimizes costs. What I've asked you to do here is I've given you a data set. Uh, once you download uh, this particular software, uh, I'll have you go in and, and enter this data. Uh, and this is soil blood lead levels, uh, soil lead levels, uh, maternal blood lead levels, uh, some default values, and then you'll finally get a uh, distribution graph. If you go through this model, you'll have what you need to come up with some of the data required for the risk assessment problem on the uh, examination. At least you'll know the generalized approach. This is what the output uh, should look like. Um, and here I've penciled in the 10 microgram per deciliter standard. This is the distribution in probability of percent of the population. Uh, and this is the age range of 12 to 24 month old uh, in children. Uh, and you can see that there is a significant uh, percentage. In fact, it's 51% of the children are above this uh, key action level in this particular model. And so that gives us some indication that that probably is unacceptable. And so we're going to have to mitigate that exposure via uh, changing uh, some of the variables that we put in be by action on the ground in terms of environmental cleanup. There's another approach we have to modeling. Um, this is uh, switching over to ecotoxicology assessment. Uh, this is determining uh, various exposures and endpoints uh, in aquatic toxicity. Uh, this example that I'm going to use in the next few slides here just to conclude this lecture is acute, uh, tox acute toxicity uh, testing, uh, typically aquatic toxicity testing. In this particular case example, uh, we're using Daphnids. Uh, I actually have on the home page of the course website uh, Dance of the Daphnia video where we had a little bit of fun uh, looking at these uh, uh, fairly small critters. Uh, give you an idea of uh, one of the, this is a, a major sort of ecotox test, one of several that are used uh, in freshwater organisms. They are documented in uh, regulatory methodology, methods for measuring acute toxicity of effluents in receiving waters to freshwater and marine organisms. You can pull this up and search it on the internet and download uh, to your heart's delight the hundreds of pages of standard methods associated with these acute toxicity tests. Various organisms are used, uh, for example, Seriodaphnia dubia, Daphnia pulix, uh, um, fathead minnows and rainbow trout are some of the fish. These are juvenile fish in early sensitivity. Acute toxicity tests, meaning that you're looking to kill animals. And so these uh, water fleas, uh, in a couple of these cases, or these juvenile fish, it's an LD50 experiment. There are other uh, water tests uh, associated with reproductive success, growth success, uh, and then there's many other organisms that are used in various uh, sort of tests like algae or earthworms for terrestrial uh, analyses, for instance, toxicity of soil. In this particular test, what we do is take a look at dose response. Uh, we take a look uh, at a dose, and this is for whole effluent toxicity testing, and so typically this is a management approach to an end of pipe. Uh, where the pipe would contain perhaps mixed toxicants and the question you ask is how toxic is this water in total 
whole effluent toxicity, WET, uh, to a particular type of animal, in this case, daphnids. And so you might, for example, take as control water and then a 10% um, uh, concentration, the rest being diluted uh, dilution water, all the way up to 100% uh, of the water. And the idea is looking for mortality. Typically, uh, we do a, a probate analysis uh, of the dose response to generate things like LD10s or LD50s. We can do these tests for 24 hours, 48 hours, 96 hours, depending upon what we want. Uh, sometimes it's a static non-renewal. What does that mean? Static non-renewal means you take a 500 or one liter uh, vessel, uh, milliliter vessel, and uh, place uh, some number of daphnids in there, about 20 perhaps, uh, and allow it to sit for 24, 48 hours. There's no renewal of the water. Um, there can be static renewal where the beaker is flushed and the solution is replaced periodically, and we can also have flow-through systems, and I'll show you one of those here in a moment. These flow-through systems actually have flowing concentration, so the idea is that the animal uh, might be metabolizing the toxicant, but it's being continuously exposed to the normal natural concentration. The flow-through test apparatus looks like this. It's taller than I am. Uh, this was an apparatus uh, that we used for Daphnid's uh, flow-through test uh, for some biodiesel analysis. Uh, biodiesel being a good thing, and we were trying to demonstrate that, in fact, this biodiesel from rapeseed oil and canola oil, uh, which was is being used more and more in terms of uh, vehicular fuels, has less toxicity, which in fact it did. It has about one-tenth of the aquatic toxicity that typical diesel fuels have in terms of the aquatic environment. This is a data set. Uh, once you download the, the Probit program and have it up and open, uh, this is a data set for you to go ahead and, and put in there. And here is, again, is some concentrations uh, that you might find, 5, 10, 15, all the way up to 1,000. Um, the number responding, and so the number exposed would be 20 uh, daphnids in this particular case. You can look at the number responding in terms of the, the uh, acute toxicity, acute lethality, and see that we're starting to approach 10, which would be the LD50, right? Some here where between uh, 50 and 100. So you can kind of speculate that your LD50 is going to be somewhere around 10. The probate analysis software will allow you to actually come up with that exact number and the uh, statistical significance of that number. The probate analysis program that we have uh, is used for calculating these lethal concentration, uh, effective concentration values. I want you to download it from the course resources, uh, the software link. Uh, it's typically best to load it to a flash drive, a diskette, a folder, something uh, where it is. Uh, create a folder for this. It's a peculiar program in that all of the results will actually be delivered back to that parent folder. So create a folder on your uh, flash drive, on your computer that's called Probit. That's where all your results will be. As it turns out, it's a text file. If you haven't worked with text files, you might need your notepad accessory uh, to open up that file, um, practice it, play with it. It's something that you may or may not be able to open directly with Microsoft Word, depending upon how you've set your Word up. Uh, but typically, you can open it up with the notepad accessory that's available on all Windows-operated systems. 
Well, what that does is that gives you uh, a fairly uh, uh, substantial background, I would say, in terms of your exposure to storage and uh, distribution of toxicants uh, and how it relates. Hopefully the case studies helped illustrate uh, how this happens, uh, the importance of storage and distribution in terms of toxicokinetics and also in the whole syndrome of potential for intoxication. Next time, what we are going to do is uh, try to develop some background for you on biotransformation elimination. The next step in this pathway, where we actually, uh, our cells uh, in our body actually uh, do some biochemistry to transform and assist in the elimination of some of these toxicants. Until that time, we'll see you. Thanks.